We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 this morning. Um, Al read it just a few minutes ago, so you'll want to have your finger there in your Bible so you can follow along. So this series, To Be Continued, um, the book of Acts, uh, we just started last week. Acts is unique in the New Testament. It's obviously narrative. It's telling the story of the early church. And so it's descriptive of events, not prescriptive with commands and exhortations, right? So here's the question, and we're going to have to deal with this over and over again, so let's deal with it, you know, here early on, because we're going to need, like, a a kind of um, blueprint for how to go about this. How do you apply a book that doesn't have any direct commands? Like, if you're reading one of Paul's letters and he says, you know, um, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, that's a clear command. Do you know how to apply that? This is telling a story. It's not giving counsel or commands. So we actually have to be careful not to make the descriptions in this book into prescriptions. Because this was a unique time in history. Like, we're not going to be casting any lots this morning, okay? Nor should you do it this afternoon, even though that's in the text. But we can't just read this merely as history. That's not what it is. So so how do we do this? Well, our text this morning is going to give us an opportunity to wrestle with these things and find some answers. So let's dive in. We have three points. Um, First point is in verses 12 to 14 waiting together, devoted to prayer. Second point, why did they have to replace Judas? (laughs) Let's just ask the question, verses 15 to 26, and then some concluding thoughts briefly under the third point. So first point, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. After the ascension of the Lord Jesus, we looked at that last week, then they, these disciples of Jesus, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It's about a kilometer, you know, because Jews had prescribed amount of walking and work and so forth. Well, they were avoiding work, so how much walking can you do? Well, a Sabbath day journey was about a kilometer. So they walked about a kilometer away. When they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew... Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, obviously. So this list, though it's essentially the same as Luke's list, remember, the gospel according to Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two, okay? So back in the gospel according to Luke, chapter six, there's a list of the disciples that Jesus chose to be his, ultimately, his apostles, there's actually a few interesting differences between that initial list and this one. Okay, so obviously Judas Iscariot is not on the list anymore. But in Luke 6, the biological brother pairs are together. So here's how it reads in Luke 6. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and then James and John are put together. Remember, they're the sons of Zebedee, the Boanerges, these sons of thunder, they must have had fiery tempers, okay? Um, Here, Luke arranges this list in Acts 
to place the leading apostles first. See it there? Peter and John and James and Andrew, kind of in descending order in a sense, um, breaking up the brother pairs. So perhaps there's a subtle implication to this. Their spiritual brotherhood in Christ takes priority over their biological brotherhood. It's not even mentioned. So in Acts 1, the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. Obviously, he's alive. He's appeared to his disciples multiple times over a period of 40 days. We looked at that last week. He gave them commands not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, saying that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, enabling them to be his witnesses, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then Jesus ascended. So what is this band of disciples going to do now? As they wait, verse 14 tells us, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, first off, let's just not miss how amazing it is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers were there. So if you are familiar with the gospel accounts, do you know that Mary and his brothers thought he was nuts? In the midst of his earthly ministry, like in Mark 3.20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. John 7, 5 says that not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, so what happened with his family is like a little microcosm of what happened with the apostles and the early disciples. Like the cross had blown up all of their expectations, all their hopes that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, another failed Messiah. They expected him to like set them free from, their, from the Roman oppression. Remember the men on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped that he was the one. What, what is it that changed then? So that they are now, like his mother and brothers and these others, are trusting, following, worshiping Jesus. Only the earth-shaking reality of the resurrection can make a change like that. It's the only thing that, makes, that, that accounts for a change like that in his family or ultimately in the early church among the disciples. I mean, we can also add the coming of the Spirit, which is in weeks to come here. Um, that turns these cowardly disciples into bold preachers who are willing to suffer and die in the name of the risen Jesus. All right? So again, just interesting to note that. Um, let's go on. Now let's consider what they were doing as they waited. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So here they are, unified, devoting themselves to wholehearted, persevering prayer. That word for devotion has kind of ideas of perseverance in it. And they're doing this because they're situated between the promise that Jesus made and the fulfillment. The Spirit hasn't fallen yet. Wait for the promise of the Father, Holy Spirit, and that has, the Spirit hasn't come yet. It's chapter 2. So, 
That's where they're situated, between the promise and the fulfillment. So we aren't waiting, you and I aren't waiting for Pentecost. But we all the time have to wait between the promise and the fulfillment. What should the church do between the promise and the fulfillment? Well, one of the phrases that the Bible uses repeatedly is, wait on the Lord. Remain unified and devote yourselves to prayer is what we see here. We'll actually see this devotion word again and in relation to prayer in Acts 2.42. This is post-Pentecost, so even there, they're devoting themselves to prayer as they wait and as they seek to go out on mission with Jesus. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So again, as I mentioned, you know, just a couple minutes ago, the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. We're going to see this over and over again as we study it. Um, it's also a, a book that's unique because it's this transition period in salvation history from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, um, which means it's going to record some unique situations, unrepeatable situations in some cases. And so it's not going to be this kind of like one-to-one to-do manual. But... Like, if we think, well, it doesn't have any, you know, immediate application to us, we're going to, like, suck the life out of this book that's intended to be powerful and helpful for us as the church. So it's not just a history book. This is scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work, like it says in 2 Timothy 3. So in that sense, even though it's not prescriptive, it is programmatic, okay? So programmatic means following an overall plan or schedule. So the book of Acts is repeatedly laying down a pattern to follow. So for instance, Paul uses the same word for devotion, and he uses it in reference to prayer, and he turns it into a command for the church in Rome and the church in Colossae. So Romans 12.2 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be devoted to prayer, be constant in prayer. It's the same language from here. They were devoting themselves to prayer. So this early church, this little embryo of the, the early church is already laying down a pattern that will characterize and should characterize all of the churches as they are planted and as the gospel spreads throughout the world. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Same language. So understanding this programmatic nature of the book of Acts is, it's, again, it's really important. So I'm going to actually give you an extended quote here from a New Testament scholar, Patrick Schreiner, um, to kind of reinforce this point. Again, especially as we get started in the book of Acts, it's good to um, be clear on how this all works. So he writes this, the new community must figure out how to act now that Christ is gone. What has God instructed them to do? Where is the kingdom? How will they respond to persecution and pressures? What is the future of God's people? How do they live under the rule of Rome as a marginal and contested community? Acts is a model, a prototype, an exemplar for the renewal of the church to encourage God's people. 
Acts speaks to the church in two different ways, as a transitional and a programmatic book. As a transitional book, Acts recounts non-repeatable events that establish the community of faith. For example, Pentecost is an unrepeatable event. The reestablishment of the 12 apostles is exclusive to the period of Acts. However, Acts also confronts Christians as a programmatic book. It provides guidance for the church in every age. Its message can't be locked in the past. Its accomplishments can't be relegated to a bygone era. Its miracles can't be separated to another age. The same spirit is still active. The same Christ still rules. The same God still sustains his church. The scope of what happens in Acts is nothing short of remarkable. Within the space of 30 years, the gospel is preached in the most splendid, formidable, and corrupt cities. It reaches the holy city, Jerusalem, the city of philosophers, Athens, the city of magic, Ephesus, and the empire, Rome. Its message and work were not done in a corner. Its victories and opposition were not minor blips in history. Acts recounts the struggle and success of the gospel message going forth all under the plan of God, centered on King Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. Luke writes to encourage the church, telling it that this is the plan of God. His kingdom plan is not put on hiatus once Christ leaves. Rather, it kicks into high gear as the Spirit comes and the good news goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. So what we're going to see in how the gospel, like, gains ground and spreads to all of these cities should help us if we want to reach our city. So their devotion to prayer, specifically here in chapter 1, is programmatic. So we should learn from the early church here. What else do we see along these lines? Their unity. And Jesus prayed for this unity. We won't look at John 17, but you see it there. He died for this unity. We won't look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, but it's clearly there. We, as the church, must value and protect and promote this unity. Listen to how Paul speaks of how vital this is, how central this unity is in Ephesians 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So, programmatic, devoted to prayer, unified as we are devoted to prayer. And, and here's the thing. If anything other than Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom, like seek first the kingdom and the mission to be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, if anything other than that is central in our lives, then our unity will inevitably fracture and weaken and fall apart. So, for instance, when politics becomes the center, or when sports become the center, or even children become the center, or schooling choices, or diets, or, you know, whatever. Like, any time Jesus and his kingdom drifts out to the periphery, 
and something else takes the center, then the church unity that we have is going to be superficial at best. It's going to be weak. Or we're going to just like align with people that have the same sort of interests as us, these secondary interests. And we're certainly not going to be on mission together like the early church here. So just, just a real practical, for instance, your community group, my community group, our community groups here at Bethel, really important context for cultivating blood-bought unity that's mission-focused, okay? So we are a band of brothers and sisters, a bunch of Christian pilgrims helping each other home. We want to call as many people as possible to join us. And we need each other. We need each other's help to, to kind of stir each other up to love and good deeds, to help each other keep going, to bear one another's burdens, hold each other accountable, all of that, so that you help me, I help you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness in this area and that area and the other area of life and work and home and, and leisure and money and everything. But if our group ends up being really just like, to be honest, like a social unit with a veneer of Christianity, then what are we going to end up like talking about and centering our fellowship around sports teams and hobbies and kids and griping about inflation and and you know as long as everybody's still on the same page pretty much with that stuff we'll get along but we won't be united around the right things like so the point is it's not just well we're together because we're Christians but we just talk about all the secondary stuff Again, I'm not trying, like, don't turn into, like, the, the conversation police in your community group, like, I think you're talking about something of secondary importance, you know? But the point is, like, what are, what's at the center? What's at the center of our unity? What's at the center of our purpose? What's at the center of our mission? We want Jesus to be the center, and then... We are seeking first his kingdom. We are helping one another live all of life with Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom at the center. And we need the book of Acts to help us in that. And it's going to give us a pattern to follow. And then finally, um, I'm going to skip that finally. <laughs> um, it was the wait on the Lord thing. Because again, they are living between the promise and the fulfillment. Um, that is so, oh, it's so central in the Christian life because we live all the time between the promise and the fulfillment. And we need to learn to wait on the Lord. And we need to help each other do the same thing. So waiting for the Lord is what you do between the giving of the promise and the receiving of what is promised. Um, Read, read Hebrews 11. You'll see it. It's all over the place. It's the normal Christian life. So we find ourselves in that situation often. Acts 1's here to show us this pattern of life of his people, uh, devoted to prayer, unified, waiting on the Lord. Um, embracing this sounds something like this. I love this quote by Edith Schaefer. She and her husband um, started this ministry called Labrie, I don't know, 75 years ago. Um, and 
She's no nonsense. This is great. So to live without prayer being woven into every part of every day is stupid, foolish, senseless, or is an evidence that your belief in the existence of the creator who has said we are to call upon him is an unsure belief. Common sense Christian living takes place in an atmosphere where prayer is as natural as breathing, as necessary as oxygen, as real as talking to your favorite person with whom there is no strain, as sensible as reaching into the bag of flour for the proper supplies for making bread. If that's how they were living it out in Labrie, they learned from this pattern of the early church. So in addition to being devoted to prayer, there was something else that they did while they waited for the fulfillment of the promise. They replaced Judas. Point number two, why did he have to be replaced? Why'd they, why'd they need to do that? In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David. Sounds like inspiration, right? Holy Spirit guiding David, penning this, these psalms. Concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then this parenthesis about <clears throat> how he died. Judas is the first person to receive the judgment of God for his rebellion in this book. It's going to happen again with Ananias and Sapphira. Is that right? Yeah, and Sapphira. Um, so this account is gruesome, but that's the point. Like, we should be repulsed. We should recoil from evil and its ultimate consequences. And then Peter quotes Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> For it is written in the book of Psalms, <clears throat> may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's the Psalm 69 quote. And then from Psalm 109, let another take his office. In other words, what's happened is not outside of God's sovereign control. In fact, it was foretold and so it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Does it make Judas a puppet? No, we don't have time to go into all those issues as far as how God's sovereignty and human responsibility relate to one another. But if you look at, if you take the time to look at both of these psalms, in both of them, the innocent or the righteous sufferer is attacked without cause. Both of these psalms are of David. So David is calling on God to judge the wicked in both psalms. And then in Psalm 109, an individual is singled out. So though these psalms most certainly had immediate reference in the life of David, like there's a real situation going on, they also serve as a type or a pattern for future righteous sufferers to call on the Lord and leave God's judgment to him rather than taking it into their own hands. And so Jesus, David's greater son, is the ultimate righteous sufferer. And Judas is the ultimate enemy of God, betraying his beloved son without cause. So Peter quotes these psalms. And we have this early band of disciples gathered together, unified, devoted to prayer. And Peter, he assumes this position of leadership, and he leads the group by way of the scriptures. The word is functioning. Again, this is prototypical. This is programmatic for us. The word is functioning as it should, as a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Peter concludes, verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us 
during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So Judas was, he had been, verse 17, numbered among us and was allotted a share in this ministry, but because of his apostasy, because of his betrayal, his share had to be given to another. Verse 23, they put two forward, two fit the bill, the criteria, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. So the disciples, guided by these criteria, put forward two candidates. If you're going to be a witness, you've got to be able to say that you've seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry all the way to the ascension. But then they didn't put it to a vote. They prayed again. So the Lord Jesus had chosen the first 12 to be with him. They now asked the Lord to choose Judas's replacement. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So apostleship is tied to this being a witness from the baptism of John all the way to the resurrection and ascension. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So casting lots, again, transitional book. Should we be casting lots when we don't know, you know, what to do between two options? Casting lots was an acceptable means of discerning God's will in the Old Testament. We could look at a number of texts. We'll just note two. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So most likely this method consisted of a couple of rocks. And on one of the rocks, they would have written Matthias. And on the other rock, they would have written the other guy's name. What's his name? (laughs) Joseph. And they shake the little vessel or bag or something. And the first one that rolls out, that's the guy. But the point is, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is so sovereign even over the roll of the dice. Proverbs 18, 18, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. So one more thing worth noting. This is the last time in the Bible that casting lots is mentioned. Any idea of what might account for that? Like if you know kind of what comes after this? Maybe it's a little bit of sanctified speculation, but Pentecost is the next chapter. The Spirit will now dwell within each new covenant believer, so casting lots will no longer be needed. The leading and guiding of the Spirit is actually one of the blessings of the new covenant. So it would actually be to turn back the clock in redemptive history to cast lots for, re- for decision-making. It would almost be like superstition for us seeking answers where they're not to be found. So, they replace Judas. Um, Again, why did they need to do this? I think it probably boils down to the fact that in the Old Testament you had 12, um, like the original 12 fathers, right? The 12 tribes, and now you have the 12 apostles. Um, Again, I have text here that we could look at, but we'll just look at one. Revelation 21, 
Um, when the angel shows John the New Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb, it's described like this. It had a great wall, high wall, with 12 gates, and at the, at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the, 12, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, south, three gates, west, three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the 12 tribes... The foundation of the old covenant people of God was built on those 12 tribes. The foundation of the new covenant people is built on the 12, the foundation of the 12 apostles. So Judas had to be replaced to form the nucleus of the new covenant people of God. John Stott says it well, concludes like this. The stage is now set for the day of Pentecost. The apostles have received Christ's commission and seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete again ready to be his chosen witnesses, only one thing is missing. The Spirit has not yet come. Though the place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. So we leave Luke's first chapter of of Acts with the 120 waiting in Jerusalem, persevering in prayer with one heart and mind, poised, ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled his promise. Okay. So what? Point number three. Get with the program. So I could say that snarky. I I don't mean it in a snarky way. So the title of the message is Nucleus of the New Creation. Like, what's that all about? This is the birth of the church that we are about to observe. Like, this is crazy, cosmic, significant the cells of the new covenant community have begun to multiply and it's about to explode with growth. The 12 apostles are, in a sense, the nucleus of the new creation. I was gonna say a few things about nucleuses, but you can go back to your biology notes from high school, all right? So there's a generic definition of nucleus, you know, outside of the biological realm, something regarded as a basis for future development and growth, like a kernel, okay? So this group of 120 makes up that kernel, or we could use the image of an acorn, right, that's gonna grow into the oak tree of the new covenant people of God. Guess what? This is our tree. We're getting to go back through time and see how it all got started, how it was planted, how it survived harsh winters. So all kinds of threats to get kicked up in the book of Acts. And then... They get overcome. And God, through Christ, by the Spirit, is building his church. All kinds of axe-wielding enemies. The tree still stands. So the book of Acts is programmatic, and we, if we're part of the New Covenant community, need to get with the program personally, in our families, in our church family. This is a pattern for decision-making, for waiting on the Lord, what we do while we wait. Unified, devoted to prayer. We live all of our time in one sense between the promise and the final fulfillment. We're being encouraged by the exemplary example of the early church to wait on the Lord in unified, devoted prayerfulness for the sake of the mission and the kingdom of God. But wait. the last page of my notes just in case you're getting nervous Um, 
command and example. Like, those are both important. They can both be powerful, but we also know how powerless just commands can be to change us, and even examples. So as Jesus was heading into the dark night of the soul in Gethsemane, remember how he appealed to Peter, James, and John? He said, pray, you all, it's plural, like, pray together that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, you know, Father, take this cup. Not my will, but yours be done. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? I gave you a command. And they had an example. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Paul Miller wrote the book, A Praying Life. He also wrote a book called A Praying Church. And in the book, A Praying Church, he says, Gethsemane reminds us that Jesus' example and teaching by themselves do not produce change. His example gives us a track to run on, but without his atoning death and the gift of the Spirit, examples only depress us. Reminding us of how we fall short, how we failed again. We haven't been consistent as we should. For Jesus' disciples to become a praying community, he has to get inside them which he has by his spirit. So listen, the real nucleus of the new covenant is Jesus. Yes, the apostles and the early church, but the real powerhouse of the new creation is Jesus. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies... It bears much fruit. Jesus himself is the acorn of the new covenant community tree, oak tree. He's the second Adam, the head of a new race. He willingly fell into the earth and died to bear much fruit. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and for growth and for the mission. And the almighty spirit animates that mighty, imperishable seed that's fallen into our hearts to create unkillable, new, and eternal life. The same power, Brian said it, saying it again here, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, his people. So we sung it. Christ has defeated sin. Now we can. And we should. We should, we should, we should cast every care on him. That was the plan and the program all along. You don't have to generate this power on your own, but the power of the Spirit is given, the power of the gospel, the power of the Spirit is given to us for a reason. Jesus died for a reason, that his kingdom might come, his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's get with the program. Personally, in our families, in our church, the nucleus of the new covenant community is this model of unified, prayerful obedience to the word of God. And the gospel of Jesus, made real and powerful in our hearts by the Spirit. Lord, do it. Lord, continue to pour out your Spirit and strengthen us and animate us and empower us so that we would be a part of the unstoppable growth of the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.
pray that you would show us what it looks like to be and live as your church, your people. And I pray that you would empower us by the grace of the gospel and the power and presence of your spirit to be awake and alert, to rise up and seek first your kingdom together. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.